It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hello, I am Lauren Vogelbaum. This is Forward Thinking. Jonathan Strickland is going to cut in in just a moment, but we had a quick addendum to the following episode. It's going to be about climate change and future-oriented, though we may be. We could not have predicted that when we recorded this on September 17th or so, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was going to release a new report just about a week later. Now, this new report is very much in line with the trends that we're going to talk about in this episode, but in case you would like the updated facts and figures, I'm going to write a blog post about that. It is going to go up slightly after this episode airs, so go over to fwthinking.com to check that out, and uh, stay tuned. Thank you. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says it's a cool, cruel summer leaving me here on my own. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that sound of disapproval comes from Lauren, who is shaking her head at me. Today, we're going to talk about climate change. What is climate change? What's global warming? Are they the same thing? What's what's the deal? Yeah, climate change. So I saw a movie about it. Uh-huh. Um, 
Was it I like it was a Inconvenient the, Truth? No, it was called The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, that movie, right. Uh, it came out a few years back. I don't know if you saw it, but it had it had some very attractive actors in it, uh, uh, and they fought against the evil villain of climate change. Basically, what I learned from it was that climate change creates uh, intelligent anthropogenic ice that chases you down hallways. Right, yes. It, it has or or Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal down hallways. Yeah, Specifically, gets, I mean, Jake, yeah. Right. It's got it really had it in for him, yeah. yeah. Um, that, uh, that, that everything happens in like, I don't remember, it was like, it looked like it was like an hour. My favorite part of that movie is watching characters running from the cold front as mm-hmm. it's passing over and, and turning things instantly into ice and just barely slipping inside a a library and shutting the door yeah. to keep the cold front out. It's I expected like to people, hear. It's like when people run away from an explosion, right? In a movie. And they're able to outrun it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it made me think that there was going to be a knock at the door, and then you just hear cold front. Like, <laughs> no, don't get it. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, so it everything a, I learned from this movie is this all correct? Uh, <laughs> let's just say that the film takes some liberties with science. Oh, okay. So. Then uh, climate change, global warming, these things aren't really happening. See, as it turns out, there's actually a middle ground between the movie The Day After Tomorrow <laughs> and the complete denial that climate change and global warming are a thing. Well, I, I like to uh, listen to what scientists have to say. Well, let's so let's, let's what, what do they have that. to say? Well, first, let's let's define some terms, right? Okay. Because I mean, obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about global warming and climate change. And one thing that we notice is that in Maybe in popular science reporting and in general uh, amongst the the public, these two terms tend to be confused or sometimes used interchangeably, and that's not exactly correct. Uh, yeah, it turns out that if you talk to scientists, how they use these terms is uh, that global warming refers more often specifically to the increase in the mean surface temperature of the Earth. Yeah, it's a uh, long-term caused thing. specifically by uh, human. Human emissions, usually. Right. The, this recent trend we're talking about. Right, right, right. Whereas climate change refers to both global warming and everything else that causes the climate to change over a given period of time, a.k.a. usually a very long period of time. Right. Yeah. So you can think of global warming as sort of like a specific phenomenon and, and climate change is like that phenomenon plus all of its effects. Right. And then on top of that, you also have uh, the scientific literature that tends to use these these two different terms in very specific contexts. So if you were to actually read a, a paper, one paper might be about global warming. Another one might be about climate change. And those two terms are not meant to be interchanged at all whereas like i said with some of the po- in the, the media popular- sometimes they just get tossed around without people really being yeah. uh, very aware of what right, they're doing right right it, it may be that someone is unaware of the difference or that they're just misspeaking but at any rate there does seem to be this this idea that the two terms are used uh or that one was used before and now the other one is preferred like there there's a, there's a perception a misperception as it turns out that global warming was the term that everyone was using in the 80s. And then once everyone figured out, oh, wait, no, 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 it's not global warming. It's climate change. It's switched. That's not ac- actually true. Uh, those two terms are still used pretty much just as frequently as they were before, but they're in that very specific context. So it all depends upon the context of whatever research you're reading uh, as to which term will be used. 
but the difference is actually pretty intuitive. They're what they sound like. Global yeah. warming refers to the warming. Climate right. change refers to the overall climate but, change. But, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Joe, Joe. I'm I'm confused. I mean, uh, yesterday was not as hot as two days ago, which <laughs> uh, in turn was hotter than the day before that, and a few days before that was less hot. Uh, I don't see how this climate thing is affecting me. Am I making a mistake? You might be making a mistake. Um, for one thing, here your sample size is one. It's you. Yeah, but uh, it's, I, I'm a very reliable narrator. <laughs> it's also a very small sample of days. Okay, uh, sure, sure. So to understand global trends in climate, we need to step back and look at really massive systems and averages across a lot of different timescales and geographical locations. Right, right, because climate is global, whereas weather, which is what you're talking about, is is local. Yes, yes. Weather is local and weather is something that we usually refer to in terms of, well, we can it can be as short as a few minutes and as long as a few months, but that tends to be what we're referring to when we talk about weather. Climate is a much longer term uh, uh subject matter. And like you said, Joe, we're talking about global scale with climate, not just Jonathan in the metropolitan Atlanta area over the course of the last two weeks. Okay. So that, that, but that's one of those other things that we see get confused often is the idea between climate and weather. And in fact, that can cause confusion when you're discussing things like climate change and global warming, because if someone says, yeah, but you know, this summer just didn't seem as hot as last summer. It's it's a total different scale than what we're talking about. Yeah. Basically, if you can make small talk about it in an elevator with someone that you don't know politely, then it's weather, not yeah. climate. <laughs> That's a good rubric. Did you <laughs> did you notice that the glacial ice is two percent less <laughs> over the last 20 years than it was over the last hundred and twenty years? I, see, I, I have different elevator experiences. than You, you clearly do. do. OK. Jonathan's elevator experiences are just primo. You got to ask him about them sometime. Okay. uh, So let's talk about temperature. Okay. Uh, Because clearly the central feature of climate change is this idea that the temperature is increasing. Number one, is that true? And number two, how do we know? Uh, it is true, and we know because we take measurements and we examine them. Uh, the acceleration of heating that we've seen over the last century is far greater than what we can account for using the natural cycles of the Earth. So in other words, we're seeing a more rapid acceleration in heating than we would normally see if, in fact, human intervention had not been a factor. So what kind of uh, differences are we talking about in recent years? Well, is it, is it like 100 degrees hotter? <laughs> well, like? so, okay. So over the past 5,000 years or so, global temperatures rose a total of uh, 4 to 7 degrees Celsius, depending on, you know, the, the absolute reliability of our data. And... um <clears throat> that's that's what like seven point two to twelve point six degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't just make that up off the top of my head. I wrote it down just to add a <laughs> saying. Um, but uh, <laughs> in the past century alone, um, temperatures rose point seven degrees Celsius. That's one point two six degrees Fahrenheit, which is about ten times faster than the average rate of ice age recovery warming. And uh, on top of that. Projections suggest that by the end of the 21st century, the temperature will continue to rise between two degrees Celsius and six degrees Celsius. That's kind of the range that's given. Uh, you know, six obviously would be the worst case scenario. But even if we were to 
quote unquote, fix all the problems. And we'll talk about fixing the problems in a future podcast. But if we were to fix them, we would still experience uh, uh, an, an increase in temperature because there's uh, a lag between uh, addressing the problem and having the problem actually resolve in any way. Right. Um, and all of this data is based on a whole lot of figures that we are collecting about, um, you know, the, the amount of radiation we're getting from the sun and uh, everything. Uh, Greenhouse a- gases that are present in the atmosphere, uh, everything from uh, the cloud cover, that can be a factor. In fact, there are some people who suggest that uh, through uh, increased evaporation, due to heat, heating of the oceans, that that will increase the cloud cover and that that would actually help cool, help cool the earth. Uh, I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on that particular, on that particular <laughs> uh, interpretation. I've got, but. I've got a bunch of information on that one. Uh, the, the general answer is we're not sure yet, yeah. but we'll talk about that in a future podcast. But, uh, but, but no, the, the kind of data that we collect is about the aerosols, the, the, the particles in our atmosphere, atmospheric gases, the open, ocean surface temperature changes, global sea level, uh, extent of ocean ice, plant growth, rainfall, cloud structure, uh, ground temperature, snow depth records. I mean, like all of this data is is going into the way that scientists define these estimates of global warming. And um, when they take all of this data from natural events and from human created events, they they try to kind of reverse engineer the temperature ranges that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And um, the models that they create Bork around 1950, if you don't take into account human intervention. Right. So in, in other words, when you if you were to say this is only based, this is just part of the Earth's natural cycle, like this is exactly the same sort of thing that's happened in the past. You can't account for the amount of change we're seeing now in the in the time span. That's the really important part is that these are changes that we would see happen to the Earth in a natural warming trend, but we would see them stretched out over a much longer time span than half a century. Okay, so the Earth is definitely warming recently, yes. and basically nobody denies this, right? That's well, well, basically, I think most people who look at the science say, no, there's there's plenty of evidence here. It's a pretty straightforward data. Right. It's just getting hotter. Right. There's not like a question about that. Although there are people who will say that, no, it's not getting warmer because, look, the Arctic ice has recovered from uh, 2013. In 2013, the Arctic ice recovered compared to 2012. Therefore, the the earth is not warming or it's warming at a slower pace or it's declining uh, Again, a single year of data isn't enough to base a trend upon. And right. the trends that we are talking about have lasted since um, at least 1979. Yeah. So so there are people who do deny that the Earth is warming, but they are not as uh, numerous as those who deny the, the, the larger question of climate change in general. Okay. Um, so the Earth is warming. What's causing it? Well, that's where not some more of the argument comes in, right? Yeah. Um, so have you all heard of the greenhouse effect? Wait, what? The yes, greenhouse of effect. <laughs> have you ever uh, been inside a greenhouse? I have. Or have you ever been inside just a parked car out in the sunlight? My wife leaves me there all the time. When she goes into the yeah. store, yeah. Does she I crack the window, window open. I beg her to crack a window. But <laughs> she just takes the key out and it's power windows, so I'm just stuck. Seriously, people, don't leave your animals. No, no, no. It's bad. Very bad. Um, And it's bad uh, because, in a way, of the greenhouse effect. Okay. Okay? 
So the greenhouse effect happens when um, there is sort of a, a differential in the two-way transportation of energy through a medium. Mm-hmm. So it happens in a greenhouse when the sunlight comes through the glass, uh, it comes in and allows that, that UV radiation, all the sun's energy to come through one way, but then it traps heat inside. Um, right. The Earth actually works in a very similar way. And the atmosphere, right. Yeah, the atmosphere is kind of like the glass in a greenhouse. And this is totally natural. And in fact, if it didn't happen, there wouldn't really be life as we know it. No, if it didn't happen, the Earth would basically be the moon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. The uh, the the heat trapped by the atmosphere keeps the Earth at a habitable temperature. Right. That's exactly right. And uh, um, so the greenhouse effect is not a bad thing. And it's caused by multiple types of gases in the atmosphere. Um, so the biggest one actually is water vapor. Right. That one that one ends up trapping heat at an efficiency far greater than that of other uh, greenhouse gases. Yeah. So water vapor, um, cloud particles, carbon dioxide, uh, CFCs, so chlorofluorocarbons, mm-hmm. um, NO2, I believe, and methane, gases like this um, – they hover up in the atmosphere, and what happens is the sunlight passes through them on the way to the Earth, bringing energy with it. That sunlight hits the Earth's crust and gets absorbed. And when it radiates back upward as heat, that heat gets trapped under those gases and does not pass backward out of the Earth. So we get sort of a net gain of heat mm-hmm. on the planet. Um, a certain amount of this, of this, like we've said, is good because it uh, allows us to not freeze to death. But um, if you have too much greenhouse effect uh, from an over-concentration of greenhouse gases, you can trap more heat than you're used to. Right. Which is what most scientists agree is going on right now to cause this heating trend we've observed recently. Which in turn is driving climate change. Right. Right. So what can we do about this? Well... We can't really mess with water vapor much because there's a water cycle on Earth that we need. Yeah. Turns uh, out water is pretty important. Rain yeah. is kind of critical. So we don't want to mess with the water. Um, but there are these other gases that are non-condensing gases as opposed to water because water vapor condenses. It forms clouds. These non-condensing gases and mainly most scientists agree carbon dioxide mm-hmm. are responsible for a huge part of the trend in global warming. And the reason this is happening is because we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. So mm-hmm. what you can do is you can you can drill a cylinder of ancient ice out of a glacier and pull that up and look at it. And it turns out when ice freezes, it traps little air bubbles in it. Mm-hmm. And those um, air bubbles are like little time capsules of what the atmosphere was like in throughout history. Yeah, and so we can look at these, and this is one type of evidence we have for the historical presence of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What these ice cores tend to show is that pre-industrial air had about 280 parts per million of CO2. Okay. Um, this year, we hit 400 parts per million. So we've, we've so nearly we've, done we've, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not nearly doubled, but we but but half again as much. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Half again as much, uh, and that's a big deal. Uh, earlier, and so there are questions about exactly how much carbon needs to be in the atmosphere to cause a significant increase in the greenhouse effect. Um, what I've heard some people say is like, well, we really need to get down to three hundred and fifty parts per million for a stable climate. 
Um, 400 was sort of like, some people had said that's like a, a sort of turning point or a, a point of stability that, that really cannot be exceeded. And now it's like, well, we already hit that. And so <laughs> there's sort of this moving scale of what can feasibly be tolerated. Sure. Um, the point is that, uh, is that there's a correlation between the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and the, uh, and the temperature of the, or the, sorry, the climate. So you can look that, look at this. I think you mentioned earlier that these ice cores, for example, you can look at dates. Yeah. Um, in the strata of the ice. And it turns out that, uh, times when there was less carbon in the atmosphere or less carbon dioxide, there were ice ages mm-hmm. or colder periods. And time when the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere spiked, there were warmer periods, just like we're seeing now. And you, you can argue that part of this is due to um, uh, volcanic activity even today. There have been a couple large volcanoes that have erupted um, over the past few decades that have caused a significant amount of carbon dioxide to be released into the air. They also tend to release a lot of um, sulfur dioxide, which tends to uh, lower. It has a cooling effect from cloud creation. Yeah, from what I've read, uh, it seems to be that they think that the volcanoes are not a significant contributor. Not Certainly the, not compared to cars. No. As it turns out, there <laughs> or, are more cars than there factories. are volcanoes. Or fact, yeah. Power right, facilities. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so there are a few questions. Okay, so we're, we're seeing this correlation mm-hmm. between temperature and the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, but are there other things that might be causing it instead? Well, we don't know for sure, but most scientists think not. Right. Um, what well, you the, know, I, I mean, you know, alterations in um in the Earth's orbit and the Sun's orbit can change change the climate over a given period of time, but not the drastic way that we have seen it in the past couple decades. Yeah, like some objections you might see sometimes are, are people who say like, "Oh, uh, the Sun is just hotter; like it's warming the Earth more than before." Mm-hmm. But we can actually test that hypothesis, and that doesn't really stand up, apparently. Oh, right. the The Sun's energy varies on about an eleven year cycle. Um, mm-hmm. It might vary also on a on a greater cycle, but we haven't had enough data yet to to tell whether that's true. And um, as of Early 2010, the solar brightness since 2005 has actually been slightly lower yeah. than in the past. And so yet you have a warming yeah, we trend. have a warming yeah. trend during that time. The bottom line is uh, we're pretty sure that there is a substantial link between the amount of CO2 especially, but other greenhouse gases like methane, chlorofluorocarbons, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that, and the greenhouse effect that is causing the global warming trend we see. Right. So let's um, – I guess then we need to talk about some of the effects here. And we've touched on these obviously because if you're talking about global warming, uh, a lot of effects become fairly self-evident. But some of them you might not realize at first because they're kind of a – it's kind of like a domino effect, right? Yeah. So, so what's global warming going to do in the future? All right. Well, first of all, uh, ice – That sounded so uh, – Ice becomes – What serious <laughs> – Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> here's a trend that we're observing. What's it really going to do in the future? Okay. Well, um, there's, there are a lot of, a uh, lot of disagreements. Well, maybe not disagreements. There's a lot of debate and conversation around this because frankly, climate is an incredibly complex thing. There are a lot of different factors that all influence one another in different ways. And changing the temperature of the earth is definitely changing climates. It's just a question of how drastically are certain climates going to change. And, you know, once you get to a point where you're trying to predict what's happening in a particular region, it really gets tricky, right? 
Right. So in other words, saying this is exactly how it's going to affect the northeastern United States would be uh, probably uh, an irresponsible thing to say as a scientist uh, unless you were able to couch that in probabilities, making probabilistic models where you say there's a certain percentage of likelihood that this is going to happen. But keep in mind, that's a percentage of likelihood. Right. And well, there are just too many too many factors, too many points of data to really be certain about that kind of thing. Yeah. And anytime we're dealing in um, future projections instead of just say, I don't know, basic empirical observations, we're talking in terms of likelihood rather yes, than certainty. Yes. I so, mean, even with these things that we're very sure about, if it's future speculation, it's like we're 99% sure, not right. that we're Actually, positive. And in fact, there, there are percentages that are like that. There's uh, essentially a 99% certainty that we're going to see uh, increased um, heat waves in the future. So that's scientists have put that as uh, a near certainty. Uh, other ones are, uh, you know, at different ranges. But for instance, ice, we can we're going to see less of it. <laughs> less of it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of melting. Uh, so we're going to see a loss of sea ice. We're going to see reduction in glacier sizes. We're going to see uh, ice breaking up and melting earlier in the year on lakes and rivers and places where it does freeze over. Right. That's because every year um, ice will will reform in the winter and then melt down in the summer. And when they talk about the glaciers melting, it's not that they're all doing it all at once for evers. Um, it's, it's just that less ice is being recaptured in the winter right. than it was the previous so, year. So uh, the overall trend is that the glaciers are getting smaller in size right. in, uh, in, over time. And then you, also we see decrease uh, decreases in snowpacks, uh, which means um, you're going to see some actual ecosystems change as a result. And by the way, all of this ice melting and, and uh, decreases in snow winds up creating warmer temperatures overall because ice and snow are reflective, whereas um, warm ground or warm water or even, I mean, you know, room temperature, ground or water are um, darker and therefore absorb more of that heat coming down from the sun. Yep. Uh, NASA says that the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets have decreased in mass. Uh, from 2002 to 2006, they estimate that Greenland lost uh, between 150 to 250 cubic kilometers or 36 to 60 cubic miles of ice per year. And Antarctica lost about 152 cubic kilometers or 36 cubic miles of ice between 2002 and 2005. So Antarctica's not losing it at the same rate as Greenland, but it's still losing ice. Uh, on top of that, we're seeing uh, the possibility of, of drastically shifting weather patterns. We're talking massive changes in precipitation levels. So the day after tomorrow. Not that <laughs> dramatic and that quick not not this this flip-flopping effect where you suddenly have temperatures drop to 30 below zero uh, in a blink of an eye but rather that you're going to see areas get more rain than they normally would while other areas become uh, get less rain and end up having uh, severe droughts but, um, but not intelligent droughts not not as far as I can <laughs> determine they might still chase Jake Gyllenhaal because wouldn't we all I would like to have an intelligent drought on this podcast to <laughs> replace a certain co-host who's getting a little, uh, little, little, uh, little beans in the system. I'm just kidding, Joe. He can sit next to you. Uh, so yeah, changes in precipitation levels. Uh, also, projections suggest that there's 
a possibility that we'll see more rainfall in high latitudes and less rainfall in subtropical climates. So that's going to dramatically change those ecosystems, which brings me to other ecosystem changes. Plant and animal ranges are going to shift as environments become less suitable for over time. We've already started to see that where we're seeing uh, animal populations move from where they traditionally would range because those areas are no longer suitable for them. That's going to continue uh, in Latin America. Uh, Rainforests are starting to change over into savannas. Now that means that there's also been a, a decrease in precipitation there, which means that there's a, a greater strain on fresh water resources. So people are having to work harder to get fresh water in those areas. Also means that because the rainforest is converting over to a different kind of ecosystem, you're seeing a real risk to biodiversity. Lots of species that are put at risk because of that lo- uh, loss of, of their environment. Uh, in Europe, there's been an increase in flash floods and coastal flooding. Uh, projections for Africa indicate that severe droughts and larger strain of water resources will be in the near future. That, of course, will also affect food resources. We've discussed this in the past, how water and food are so closely related. Uh, Asia is also going to experience increased flooding and decreased access to fresh water. So lots of rough things there. On top of that, the ocean is being affected. In a couple of different ways, uh, salinity is changing. That's the amount of salt concentration in the oceans. Um, that changes. And uh, drawing on observations from 1955 to 2004, uh, researchers found that the ocean salinity changed throughout the study period and that the changes were independent of known natural variability and that the shifts were consistent with the expected effects of anthropogenic climate change. So in other words, this is not due to some sort of undersea activity or natural cycle. This is something right. anthropogenic that, means caused by, by man, by, us. by humankind. Uh, the pH of oceans is changing. Uh, this is because when carbon dioxide uh, reacts with seawater, it lowers the pH of the seawater. Uh, so that means it makes it more acidic. Um, so Which, if you've ever had a, a, a fish tank at home, you that, know. That could be a bad thing. could be a bad thing. Yeah, so it absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide, and it that kind of does that, you know, it just does that naturally. Over over a long period of time, it would absorb, like if we were to stop producing CO2 today, and and only natural sources were producing it. Uh, the ocean would end up absorbing that CO2 over the course of, you know, a couple thousand years. Um, but uh, it's – and that would dramatically change that ocean over that time. But we're also talking about using the ocean as a possible sink for carbon dioxide, which we'll talk more about in, a, in another podcast. But that would mean – uh, pumping up the acidity level of the oceans, at least in a regional area, wherever the pumping was being done, uh, in a in a time scale that would be much shorter than what we would see naturally. So, in other words, we'd be seeing something happening in the oceans that is akin to what we're seeing in our atmosphere right now. It would be the the effects would be different, but it's the same sort of thing where, you know. <laughs> It's not necessarily a solution to a problem. It's creating a different problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of a lateral shift. On top of that, we're talking about the complexity of climate. You know, it's like we said, it's it's complicated stuff. There's so many different things to bring into consideration that it is very difficult for us to say for sure what is going to happen in the future. It's just uh, we know that these basic things are very likely to happen. When you get more specific, like will we see greater cyclone activity and intensity in the future? That's a possibility, but it's not a certainty. I think that's rate, rated at about a 66% level of certainty, which is still – 
over 50%. It's more certain than not, but still, you know, but 44% still, is a pretty huge uncertainty. Yeah. But then when it comes to things like, you know, there'll be more heat waves and there'll be less rain in some areas and more rain in other areas, the certainty level is way higher, like 90% or above. So, uh, so there are some things that we just cannot know right now because we don't have all the information we would need to project a, an accurate model. And it, it's just so hard to project in this realm because you're not talking about, say, predicting a chemical reaction in a beaker that's right. isolated. Uh, the climate is something that creates feedback loops within itself. So lots of different climate variables influence the other ones. Uh, it influences weather. Weather influences ecosystems, which affect the climate. And so yeah. there's just it's it's incredibly a very uh, complex system. Yeah, and not only that, but we can't even be certain how much greenhouse gas we're emitting on any given day, let alone like we can make estimates. Yeah. But those estimates are based upon information that researchers can gather. And when you think well, about it, the, the world's a big place. So. Yeah. The um. So like the estimates I was using earlier, they come from uh, the Mauna Loa Observatory mm-hmm. in Hawaii, and that that consistently has been collecting uh, data on the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide for a while now. Sure. And so that can pretty steadily track what's going on. But the concentration might not be um, – actually don't know the answer to this, whether it's uh, concentrated more in some places than others or if it's pretty well diffused. dispersed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean the, the point being that even uh, – you know, even if if one nation were to cut out all carbon emissions, unless every other nation did so as well, uh, you know, it, the the effect might be small, at least in the short term. Maybe in the long term, it would make a, a pretty big difference. But in the short term, it would be negligible. We would have to have a much larger effort to really make a, a huge impact. Okay, so looking forward into the future, we are certain that the earth is warming and the trend is that it's going to continue warming we're very confident that human activity has caused this Mm -hmm. and there are predictions we've made about lots of possibly very negative consequences of this with varying degrees of certainty with each of those predictions Mm -hmm. um what what do we do next well first uh i mean a lot of that we're going to address in our next episode. But first, I think we need to talk a little bit about the concept of a scientific consensus. Yeah, there's sort of a public conversation going on about global warming, in case you haven't noticed, right? climate change. If you're not on Twitter or something. Uh, so you know, scientific <laughs> consensus is one of those terms that I think uh, gets thrown around a lot, and there's not – a full understanding in in the general public about what that means. Yeah, okay. Well, l- let's just do a little experiment here. Imagine I am a layperson uh, that doesn't have a lot of expertise on climate science. That's not hard to imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so but, go on. But I recognize that there's this public debate about climate change. And specifically, I think the most uh, contentious part of the debate is the anthropogenic part, right. like whether Human humans caused. are causing this, mm-hmm. um, which I guess affects the idea of whether or not we can, we have the power to stop it. Or if we um, should, if we should take any efforts to stop it because of the potential impact that would have on economy, lifestyle, etc. Right, right. Um, so I, I am a layperson. I have no expertise in this area. And I noticed that there are people who both seem to know more than me about it arguing about it. Mm-hmm. So how do I make a decision? 
How do I form an opinion about this that's over my head? Well, the scientific consensus in this case, when we talk about consensus, you're talking about a a large group of people who have all uh, kind of come to the same conclusions, uh, perhaps independently, and they are presenting a united front, at least on some level, on the the issue. Well, what is the consensus? What like how many people agree about this? In in a study of papers that were expressing a position on um, anthropogenic global warming, ninety seven point one percent endorsed the consensus that um, that humans are in fact causing it. Yeah, that's a that's a huge scientific consensus there. Uh, this is from a literature review that was published in 2013 called uh, Quantifying the Consensus on Anthropogenic Global Warming in the Scientific Literature. Is that the one in Environmental Research Letters? That is indeed. <laughs> um, so the way this uh, the study progressed, as I understand it, is they looked at all these different reports and they looked for any mention of uh, the causation for whatever the the, uh, the the warming or climate change effect was, right? 11,944 reports, in right. fact. And so, from 1991 to 2011? Correct. Well, let's just read from the abstract to have some clarity here. Sure. They say, we analyzed the evolution of the scientific consensus on anthropogenic global warming in the peer-reviewed scientific literature examining 11,944 climate abstracts from 1991 to 2011, matching the topics global climate change or global warming. We find that 66.4% of abstracts expressed no position on uh, AGW. 32.6% endorsed it, 0.7% rejected it, and 0.3% were uncertain about it. So, in other words, out of the ones that actually addressed what the cause was, 97.1% said it was anthropogenic. And uh, then the, but I understand that some people are framing this in a different way. Well, yeah, actually, this is a good example of how, um, Sometimes it can be difficult to interpret scientific literature. I I was just looking around about this paper. I found one blog post on the Internet that was like, look, you know, out of all these scientists, only 32.6% endorsed it. So that's the minority. Um, Right. Of course, ignoring the fact that, yeah, so 66% of the papers examined in this study didn't express an opinion. They like didn't, they, they didn't weren't address it about what caused it, whether right. it was anthropogenic or not. Right. Um, they were, you know, they just didn't address that issue. But uh, so they looked at that and said, like, oh, look, it's it's the minority now. Um, of course, it's not the minority. In fact, it, it on between, yeah, as we've just been pointing out, of the papers that did express an opinion, whether it was caused by humans or not, 97% said that it was. Right. So that is a pretty that's a pretty uh big consensus there. Yeah. And not only that, but beyond that, there have been plenty of uh of uh climatologist gatherings where more and more people are just saying like no, the the scientific community at at large says that this is something that's happening. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who disagree, but they are in a very tiny sliver. Right. And and we do want to say that we absolutely support skepticism. I think all three of us are, are pretty big skeptics in general. We really appreciate the rigor of scientific research. You know, we want questions to be asked. That questions being asked is the entire point of science. Right. But if you aren't asking questions, if you're simply dissenting. Yeah, if you're then denying. If you're simply denying something, then you're not really 
being scientific and, you know. So in other words, uh, what I would tell the layperson is that the majority of scientists who have devoted their their professional lives to studying this say that one, it's a thing two it's it's being caused at least in part by human activity and that therefore we could do something that would reduce that, um, that those far outnumber the dissenting opinion and that it's not to say this scientist is smarter than you are, but rather that here's all the research that they have done that has been reviewed and replicated well, it, it's not just that scientists are smart. In fact, it's not even just that scientists are the people who spend a lot of time studying this, though both of those things tend to be true. Um, it's you're trusting when you trust in a scientific consensus, you trust not just in a person but in a process. Right. You're you're trusting in the fact that the way um, the scientific community works is that everybody's trying to prove each other wrong. Yeah. Right. Like, there's huge rewards for proving someone wrong yeah, with math. The the way you would get accolades and attract a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it, money yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah. It, is to um look to say actually everybody's wrong about this and here's why. And if you produce a good argument that people look at and they say, oh wait a minute, yeah, we do need to review uh, our our opinions. Um. That's how you become famous as a scientist. Well, it's I mean, also, you think about most of the most famous scientists are people who changed opinions in their field. Sure, sure, and it's but the, I mean the 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 thing we are looking at here, and I mean I completely agree. But the thing is, uh, for the the scientific consensus here is that I, I want to make sure that our listeners know we're not advocating you fall into the rhetorical fallacy of argument from authority, which is one of those ideas where you say, because this person is an authority in this place, everything they say is right. What we're really saying is that there's been a massive amount of research. It all points to the same way the scientific community at large agrees upon that. Right. No. We're, we're giving authority to their to their numbers and their methodology, right. not them themselves. Exactly. It, well, and the fact that even this consensus doesn't mean that it's right. It just gives you a, a more, a greater confidence that yeah, it's like, right. Because in any case, if you don't know exactly for yourself and nobody really does on these issues, you are making a value judgment. You know, you're, sure. you're, you're estimating probability. Yeah, right. And as more people who know a whole lot about this kind of thing agree, the probability that they're wrong is probably is decreasing. Right, exactly. So could a lone voice of dissent be correct and say that uh, all of these studies are wrong and in fact they were all misinterpreted? They absolutely sure. could be, yeah. But that but that possibility Gets is smaller all the incredibly time. Incredibly tiny. I mean very, very tiny. Doesn't mean that it's impossible, it just means it's not plausible. Um, you know, it's it's something that could turn out to be the case. I seriously doubt it just based upon the massive amounts of research and time that has been dedicated to studying this already. It could be caused by interdimensional reptiles. Okay. Reptilians. Uh, reptilians. Reptilian. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So uh, ignoring <laughs> ignoring my co-hosts for the time being. Well, no, uh, it's, a, it's a hoax they came up with to fund their war against the Zeta Reticulans. Clearly. Attempting to continue to ignore <laughs> my co-hosts. All right. So anyway... Uh, It'll be, you know, our next episode, we're really going to be focusing on how best to address this, you know, assuming that all of the science is right, which I think is well within our rights to assume because of the, the massive 
probability that it is right. What can we do to reduce our impact on the environment and try and mitigate climate change. Uh, we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Now, I'm sure some of you listeners out there have a lot that you want to say about this topic. I recommend you go to fwthinking.com. That's our website where all of our stuff lives. We're talking videos, the blogs, podcasts, articles. Join in the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. Just look for FW Thinking. We are there as well. And meanwhile, uh, we're going to take a little break uh, let this room cool down a bit. It's been warming up. I don't know if that's climate or weather or... or it's just you, Jonathan. Oh, well, you know, that's, that's so sweet. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.